Praise God for His wonderful grace. We'll turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and begin reading with verse 1. We'll read down through verse 7 together. 2 Timothy 2, begin reading with verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have as your people to read it and to hear it read. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate, Lord, not only what you have done in the past, on Reformation Sunday so many years ago, but also what you continue to do in the hearts and minds and lives of so many people. We thank you for your word and pray that you would open up our hearts and our ears. May the Spirit use the word to change our hearts and transform us in the image of Christ our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning is Faithfully Stewarding the Gospel. In light of the fact that it is Reformation Sunday and we are remembering what happened nearly 500 years ago, it's only appropriate that we stop and see that we have been called as believers to faithfully steward the gospel message. Now, I know we've been talking a lot about stewardship lately. As we continue throughout the capital campaign and as we think about being a steward of the resources that God has entrusted to us. But there is something far greater that as God's people we have been called to steward. And that is the message of the gospel. And so in the spirit of the Reformation and we look back and we see that really what those great men, Martin Luther and John Calvin and and Zwingli and later John Knox, what they were doing is being faithful stewards of a message that was not new or original to them, but is the timeless truth of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And it was once they understood this truth, once they saw this truth and experienced its transformative power in their own lives, then we received these great phrases from the Reformation, such as sola scriptura, only the Bible, only the scriptures. And then through an understanding that we are saved by grace through faith alone. It's that understanding that inspired the other phrases, solo gracia and sola fide. And in, in particularly faith in the person of Christ who saves us and brings glory to God. That belief, that faith inspired the sayings, solus Christus and soli Deo Gloria. So it is the very truth of God's word as it has been conveyed throughout history and as it was restored or renewed in the lives of men like Martin Luther that they were sharing. And so it's in that spirit that I think we should take a moment to uh, consider here from scripture 
what it means to be a faithful steward of the gospel of grace. Because even in our own day, we may think that it's easy, that it is something that we are overly confident in, trusting in the gospel of grace, but it is actually a challenge. It's something that we have to preach to ourselves daily. We have to remind ourselves of daily. We have to trust in daily. So to begin with, we should begin by asking and answering the question, what is the gospel? We can't rightly steward the truth of the gospel if we do not know what the gospel is. In the text that we read, actually in the chapter that precedes it, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, the Apostle Paul shares this summary of the gospel with young Timothy. He says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he summarizes the gospel by calling it the sovereign election of God, his eternal election, election of a people independent of our meritorious achievements or of our good works, an election that occurred before time, before we were born, before we were created, and it lacks uh, any qualifying characteristics of our own that we contribute to it. He says that it is God, through his grace alone, that before the time and world began, chose us to be his, that we would belong to him, that we would be his children. And this truth, he goes on to say, is manifested in the incarnate word, the word of God, the God-man, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ Jesus, his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he concludes by saying that it is the death and resurrection of Christ that abolishes death, and that bestows upon us the gift of eternal life. So this summary, which begins before time began, which looks at the eternal design of the Father, His election of a people in Christ, not because of our goodness, not because of any contributing characteristic that we bring to the table, but rather because of His grace and His own sovereign design. He has elected us, and He's made known to us the salvation that is revealed in the very person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, that's a summary of the gospel, and we may think that uh, it's simple, we may, because it is. We may think that it's something that uh, we've heard a thousand times, but I will challenge you that it's something that in every generation, the enemy of our soul endeavors to muddy and confuse within our mind. It's something that is countercultural in every generation. It's something that in every epoch of time, every principality and prince of this world seeks to overthrow and seeks to supplement. And so we are called as Christians, as believers in the 21st century to be a good steward, a faithful steward of the gospel of grace. And then the Apostle Paul, when he gives this admonition in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he actually provides three pitfalls. He makes us aware, if we are to be good stewards of the gospel of grace, what are some of the pitfalls 
that uh, prevent us or that would dissuade us from the truth of the gospel. He provides these here in our text. The first, and it's there in your notes, is the distraction of self-righteousness. He gives these, he identifies these pitfalls through three different illustrations or three analogies. And he first identifies the distraction of self-righteousness. He admonishes Timothy, he says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So from the get-go, he lets us know that it's not going to be easy, that we have to contend for the faith, that we are called to be a soldier. And a soldier, by very definition, is engaged in warfare. And then he continues this analogy in verse 4 by saying that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, when we think of all the ways that we can be distracted from the timeless truth of the gospel, one way is found here in the life of a soldier. And I Personally, I prefer the, uh, the interpretation of the authorized version, the King James version of this particular passage, just because the word that is there translated in the ESV as soldier has a more intensive meaning in Greek. And so the KJV, the King James version, actually translates this passage by saying that no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. It paints a picture, an active picture, because you can be a soldier in a time of peace. But the picture that is painted there in the text is of a soldier who is warring, one who is in a battle. And so the analogy that the Apostle Paul is making is a little more clear. That when a soldier is engaged in battle, he doesn't stop and take time to entertain civilian pursuits. And so at the very core, in that moment of his success as a soldier, is his sense of identity. Is he a soldier? Is he in the midst of a battle? Is he fighting for the one who commissioned him? Or is he a civilian? Does he have foundational to his motive some ulterior purpose? And so the Apostle Paul makes known that oftentimes in our own life, what we are distracted with is a sense of our own self-righteousness. That we know that we are called to be a soldier of the cross. That we are called to be a champion of this gospel. That nothing that we have done or ever shall do will make us worthy of God's love and acceptance. But yet too many times we live our life as if we believe otherwise. We are distracted. Our identity is called into question. Instead of being confident that we are called to be soldiers of the cross, we begin entertaining civilian pursuits. Now, What does Paul mean by this analogy? Well, first and foremost, a soldier who is embattled and entangled in warfare does not have the time nor the luxury of thinking that he is a civilian. Because what is at stake is his very existence, his very life. But there's a higher calling, a higher purpose that is at stake as well, and that is his commissioning oath. The fact that as a soldier, he took an oath. He was commissioned by his officer. And so the Apostle Paul says that a soldier does not get entangled with civilian pursuits because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, often in our lives, we are distracted by a sense that we can be a soldier and a civilian at the same time. That it's grace plus something else that results in our justification. A good self-test is to ask yourself how often throughout the course of a day, 
throughout the course of a week, you either ask yourself the question, have I been good enough? In my former pastorate, when I was pastoring a a church in Arkansas, I, I often sat and communicated with people who were sick and at the point of death. And time and time again, one of the things that I heard people say was, I've done my best. I've tried, but I'm afraid. What is it in the moment of death that causes fear in the life of an individual that causes them to say, I've done my best? It's an understanding of the gospel that is no gospel at all. It's being distracted by a gospel of self-righteousness, that somehow I can do something that will make me more deserving of God's favor, that somehow I can do something that qualifies me to be accepted by Him. But our justification, and this is the timeless truth of the gospel that Martin Luther and the great reformers fought for, as Josh mentioned earlier, in their context, in their own culture, Martin Luther lived in a day and age in which the church said, you will never know in this life if you are part of the saved and the elect. Because it depends not solely on God's grace, but also on your efforts. And so until death and even beyond, there was this idea that you could purchase an indulgence, which would limit the amount of time that you had to spend in limbo, in purgatory. It limited the amount of time that you had to spend atoning for your own sins. And we have this critical tendency to look back over history and to judge perhaps unfairly or at least hypocritically the Roman church for saying well why did you focus so much on grace plus something else instead of the pure unadulterated truth of the gospel of grace but yet in our own lives too many times we live even if we don't consciously confess or consciously proclaim we live as if we are calculating grace plus our effort would justify us in God's sight. And so there is the distraction of self-righteousness. That the grace of Christ is not enough. That somehow it's my effort, it's my participation with that grace that saves me. Now, when we think of sanctification, we do have a human responsibility. And so I do not want to muddy the waters or I don't want you to misunderstand that when we talk of sanctification and growth in grace, there is an element of human responsibility that is involved. However, sanctification is a byproduct of justification. And justification is only by God's grace. We are saved not because we are good, We are saved because Christ is good. We are saved not because we are righteous. We are saved because Christ is righteous. And so as a soldier of the cross, we are not to become entangled in the affairs of this life. We are not to pursue civilian pursuits. And so that's the first thing that we can learn from this analogy of a soldier. That soldiers are set apart, commissioned for a specific purpose. And secondly, that civilians are employed in some other occupation that might well obscure their view of danger or even reality. If you think of the commission of a soldier, a soldier by very definition implies an enemy that must be fought. Whereas as a civilian, you can live peacefully unaware of of, of turmoil and war that is occurring around you. But it is the truth of the timeless gospel that we are saved by grace, that we are justified by grace through 
uh, by faith through grace alone that redeems and that liberates. When Luther finally understood, and if you know anything about the life of Martin Luther, you know that one thing that vexed him was a, a reading and a rereading of Romans 1.17 that talks about the righteousness of God being revealed. And, and when he finally understood by the grace of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that this righteousness is a passive one. That it is a passive righteousness. One does not, it does not originate with man, but it originates with God. It's imputed by Christ and his finished work instead of contributed to by human effort. When he understood that, then he was free. And that led to him nailing the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. The spark that started the Reformation. The third thing that we can learn about the analogy here of a soldier is that it's impossible to be a civilian and a soldier at the same time. At least one who's engaged in warfare. If you're engaged in warfare, you either are a soldier with the desire to to accomplish the mission which you've been given, or you're not. And what's at stake is not simply your very identity, but it's your very life. And so the Apostle Paul was admonishing young Timothy that at stake in the life of a believer is the truth of the timeless gospel. Now, the second distraction that he identifies here in the text is the distraction, what I call the distraction of syncretism. He talks about an athlete, and he says in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So if the threat of death and loss of identity is the natural consequence of a soldier who forgets he's entangled in warfare, then syncretism is the result of an athlete who either chooses not to play by the rules or forgets what they are. And historically speaking, I would say that the church has struggled with the first distraction more probably than this one. The idea that we have to add something to God's grace in order to be accepted and justified in the sight of God. But in our own culture today, possibly because of the relativistic society in which we live, the distraction of syncretism has an increasing potency in the life of the believer. And we see it in churches around us. Churches that once upon a time were evangelical, that stood for the purity of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel of grace, but now have been willing to compromise and are willing to say that all versions of the gospel are equally true. This sense of spiritual relativism is dangerous because it clothes itself with truth. But in actuality, it is a lie. It's syncretism. It's the idea that somehow some other gospel, other than the gospel that is presented in in scriptures, can be proclaimed, and that's okay. So assessing the condition of the church in the West today, I would suggest that the pitfall, the greatest pitfall that we struggle with is is this challenge of, of gospel syncretism. That instead of proclaiming the truth, there's a difference between believing that the only thing that justifies us is the grace of God and somehow believing that it's grace plus our works, plus our effort that justifies us in God's sight. And when you reflect on the Reformation and you reflect on some of the battles that were fought during the time of Martin Luther, and I've done this myself, I'm guilty. But 
when you think about the fact that a lot of bottles of ink were spilled and were drained dry over the argument about the nuances of, of Christ's presence in the sacraments. And I say that today, and, and you probably gloss over a little bit and don't even really know what I'm talking about, because today it seems so trivial that we would argue that as a church, that we would argue about the presence of Christ in the sacraments, whether or not he's in them or above them or beneath them. But back then, during the time of the Reformation, that was, that was a big deal. And so I wonder, as we reflect on it, and it seems so trivial, is the reason that it seems so trivial because our, our view of theology is bigger? Or is it that our view of God is smaller? Are we less passionate for the truth of the gospel because somehow we feel we've bought into the lie within our culture that's been carried over into the subculture of Christianity that all roads do lead to Rome? That is the very pitfall that the Apostle Paul warns against. If we're not distracted by the gospel of self-righteousness, let us beware of the gospel of syncretism. And we see this not only within the church, but all throughout our culture. Think, for instance, of Lance Armstrong. And all I have to do is mention his name, and many of you know exactly where I'm going. A man who was championed as an athlete, a world-renowned athlete. He was supported, and, and accolades were, were laid upon him, and, and he was sort of the icon of the cycling movement. But then when it was found out that he had been deceiving people for years and he had been doping even though he said he hadn't, then we were aghast and we were shocked. But Lance was only one individual who was found out. This is rampant within our culture, not only within sports and among athletes, but within our culture at large. So as believers, we are called to be faithful stewards of the gospel, and that means defending the gospel even against what seems to be true, but in all reality are false truths. Now the final point that the Apostle Paul makes is what I call the distraction of sedentary Christianity. He makes this point uh, in verse 6. He says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can read that particular passage, but I think regardless of whether you put the emphasis on hard working or first share, the reality is that we must daily preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves and others, and that we also must first taste the fruit of that gospel in our life before we can crave more of it. Too many times, and what I mean by sedentary Christianity is too many times we approach the gospel as something that saved us in the past. This, I would suggest, is more of a pitfall among believers who've been in the church maybe all their life or for a long period of time. We fail to see the relevance of it today. We see the relevance of it for the past and perhaps for the future, but we fail to see that the gospel is just as relevant today as ever. That we are in need of the message that it is not by our works or by our efforts that we are justified in God's sight, that we are accepted and beloved of Him, but it's rather by His grace, His unmerited grace. Foolish would be the farmer who said, I plowed a field this year. Must I do it again next year? Foolish would be the individual who says, I was saved by grace, I was justified by grace. Instead of, I am justified by grace. 
in this life, even the process of sanctification transforms us into the image of Christ, but it is never complete until we reach heaven and to the end of life, until we are fully transformed into his image and we take on the, his likeness. But in the interim, what do we believe about ourselves? What do we proclaim to the world around us? And how do we treat ourselves on a daily basis? Are we distracted by these pitfalls identified here by the apostle? Do we fall prey to the distraction of self-righteousness, that it's Christ plus something else that justifies us? Do we fall prey to the distraction of of gospel syncretism? What, What some might call cheap grace, the idea that all gospels are equally true. Paul says that if you don't, an athlete does not play by the rules, and the rules are not open to debate. The rules are not open to suggestion, and the rules are not there simply as suggestive behavior. The rules are fixed, and Paul says that unless an athlete competes according to the rules, he will not be crowned. Or are you distracted by sedentary Christianity? The idea that, yes, justification happened way back then, and and it's not something that we need to hear today. We no longer need the gospel preached to ourselves daily. Paul himself said that he died daily. And as believers, what I find more and more as I grow in faith and as I progress in years is that I have to preach the gospel to myself daily. Because my tendency, my natural inclination... And the tendency of the world in which I live is to fall prey to any one of these three pitfalls and even others. But to fall prey to the idea that that somehow I contribute to making myself qualified to be accepted by God. Or falling prey to the idea that all Gospels are, are, are somehow, especially in evangelical Christianity, that all Gospels are somehow equal. But we are admonished here by Paul to keep our eyes on the prize, to look forward, to be a good steward, to remember that which was committed to us in the presence of many witnesses, to be a faithful steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest commission that has ever been placed on the church, and it's never changed. And it wasn't that the great reformers of of the 15th century that they discovered something new. They may have rediscovered something that had been, by and large, dormant. But even that, I think, is an unfair statement. If you look historically at the church, God has always had his remnant. And it's always been the pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ that is preserved, that is justified, that has saved his people. And so the question then becomes, as we read the message of the Apostle Paul and as we reflect on the commission that we have today as a church, as we stand in the tradition and the line of the great reformers, and as we hear the call of the gospel on our own life, we have the commission, we have the responsibility to be a faithful steward of the message of the cross. To be a faithful steward of the gospel of grace. Now you may ask, well, how do we do this? If we're called to do it, how do we do it? Well, the answer, I believe, is given in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says that by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
So each of you as individuals and as a church collectively together, living within the first quarter century or or the first quarter of the 21st century, let me admonish us and commission us that we preserve the integrity of the gospel, that we faithfully steward the message that has been deposited to us by relying on the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Do you know why that I have faith that at the end of days, Christ will have a church pure without spot, wrinkle, or blemish? It's not because I trust in man. It's because I know that ultimately it is the job and responsibility of the Holy Spirit to do what he's done throughout the ages. And that is to preserve the integrity of the body of Christ. To preserve his church. That does not mean that we will not have times in which the culture around us and maybe even the pseudo-church around us encourage us to believe another gospel. As was the case in the days of the great reformers. But it does mean that the Holy Spirit has always had his remnant and that he will continue to preserve and purify the body of Christ. And so to the great admonition that Paul gives us here in this passage... To hold on, to guard the deposit within us. We cannot rely on the arm of flesh. But we look to the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. Let me conclude this admonishment with the words of Martin Luther. Who after he had this great awakening and he had this this epiphany that the righteousness of God was not righteousness that God demanded of him. But rather it was a passive righteousness. The righteousness of Christ which he imputes on all those who accept him. And Martin Luther said this. It addresses specifically the pitfall of the distraction of gospel syncretism. He said, he who would read the Bible must take heed that he does not err. For the scripture may permit itself to be stretched and led But let no one lead it according to his own inclinations. But let him lead it to the source. That is the cross of Christ. Then he will surely strike the center. He admonishes us today. HPC, Hickson Presbyterian Church, Bride of Christ. That if we are to take God's word, his pure, unadulterated word, which discloses to us the truth of the gospel. And we are to read it and understand it, then we will see at its very core the cross of Christ and his finished work. And so it's telling that in his last days, and actually one of his last statements before his death, Martin Luther penned the words in German on a piece of paper. We are all beggars. Beggars who are looking to a cross. Beggars who are looking to a king. Beggars who are entrusted with a timeless responsibility of faithfully stewarding the gospel. We are not Martin Luther. We are not John Calvin. History might not remember us in the same way. But as Christians living in Hickson, Tennessee in the 21st century, we are given the awesome responsibility of faithfully proclaiming this glorious gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we rejoice in you, rejoice in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us, 
that you came, that you died, that you suffered, that you rose again, that we might stand justified in the presence of God. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that lives within us, that you would give us grace and strength, that the holy deposit of the truth would be stewarded and defended and guarded until you come again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.